Stacey Schilling has dedicated the last 21 years to educating patients and families about health and wellness as a registered nurse. After obtaining her Bachelor of Science in Nursing from West Virginia Wesleyan College, Stacy was awarded a grant from Stevenson University for her Master of Science in Nursing with a focus in population-based care coordination. Stacy's career has included caring for patients in neuroscience critical care, medical oncology critical care, interventional radiology, and as an organ procurement coordinator for transplant. In her current role as the coordinator for nursing clinical standards at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, Stacy assures that nursing policy and practice implement current evidence-based practice for all 3,800 nurses. Stacy shares her passion for health and wellness with her husband of 20 years and her two hilarious children. You're listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Stacy, welcome. Hi there. Hi, thanks so much for being with us today. Sure, thank you for having me. So you've worked as a nurse in several challenging facets of critical care, including neuroscience and oncology. What has been your most challenging role or assignment yet and why? I think being a new graduate nurse is probably the most challenging role. Um, Nursing school teaches you just basic anatomy and physiology. They teach you a few clinical procedures, and they focus on the nursing process, the assessment, diagnosis, implementation, and evaluation. But they don't really teach you the art of nursing And there's an art to understanding how to put all of the knowledge and expertise together based on those individual patient behaviors. And you have to blend the science of nursing with a holistic approach to treat the patient as a whole. And my first role um, in the neuroscience critical care unit, the pace was pretty fast. The patients were very critical. And I always felt like I was a step behind. And I just... I looked to the more senior nurses and thought, man, they just get it. And I don't. And... Now I look back and think, you know, there, there's so much to putting all of that education together. And once I understood how the brain would respond to the treatments that we were providing, the role became a little bit easier. But it takes time to perfect that art. How would you define mental toughness in a critical care context? I think being able to produce a consistent performance during moments of high stress Um, As a nurse, you must be 100% committed to saving human life. You can't step away. You know, you can't avoid dealing with the train wreck. Um, You have to push your emotional responses away, clear your mind, think through the process, all while anticipating what is to come next. You have to trust your knowledge, trust the training, and always reevaluate that process. You brought up human life. Which role over your 20-plus year career has required the most mental toughness? I started in oncology um, as a critical care nurse. They needed critical care nurses to come into that role. But that role actually evolved because of the fluctuating acuity. The units didn't always have critical care patients, but I wasn't an oncology nurse. So it forced me to be a little bit more flexible to fulfill the assignments. So actually what we did was created a role where I would be assigned in the morning of my shift. So I would call in on my drive-in, and they would tell me whether I would be shift coordinating the 76 beds in the Yonk Center or whether I would be covering one of the outpatient chemotherapy clinics, um, working in the urgent care, or working on one of the solid tumor bone marrow transplant or leukemia floors. 
And this role actually forced you to work with different teams, all on different units, all with different cultures. But the mental toughness came from learning all the different disease processes, the various medical diagnosis, the multiple modalities of treatments, and then how the patients would respond to the treatment. What were we expecting to happen with these complex chemotherapy regimens? And mentally, it was exhausting, but it was also probably the most rewarding because cancer patients are just awesome patients to work with. Why is that? You know, this is a devastating diagnosis for them. And they really just, they just want to get better. They want to fight it. They want to figure out how to overcome it. And it's good to see the positive outcomes and the positive science. And they, they are willing to contribute their body to science and, mm -hmm. and say, you know, hey, I'm going to try this chemotherapy regimen that's never been attempted before just to see if it'll work, mm -hmm. you know, and if it will help someone else, I'll give it a try. And that's, that's pretty brave. Mm -hmm. You brought up teams earlier. I'd like to explore team dynamics during a high-risk evolution or procedure. Can you describe the necessary dynamics for optimal performance in your industry? I'm particularly interested in the interaction between doctors, residents, and nurses. I think the number one thing that it boils down to is communication. You know, I mean, it's, there's a lot of communication happening in the hospital because of the constant handoff. You know, the shifts change every 12 hours. The doctors change every 24 hours. The whole team changes every week. And But it's interesting when you talk about high-risk evolutions or procedures, when you think about a code team or a rapid response team, those players are constantly changing. There isn't consistency within the team. You've got 70 to 90 nurses on a unit, say, and so those teams are different every day. So when a code is called, you know, the anesthesiologist is responding from the operating room. There may be a surgical fellow who comes to place the central venous access. And the doctor who actually runs the code might not know you or the patient at all if they're coming from a different service. So the nurse needs to be able to communicate a significant amount of information and repeat it multiple times as each part of the team arrives. And so for nursing, the most essential thing is to communicate the code roles and assign those code roles. And, you know, the bedside nurse is the nurse that always stays with the patient since they know the patient's history and where the IV access is located, they're usually the ones to push the medications. But typically there's two staff members who alternate to do chest compressions. You know, one nurse is doing the documentation. One nurse might, might be running the defibrillator. There's one to gather supplies. And then the other nurses cover all the other patients on the floor. So knowing your role is really key. And when you put that many people in a really small space, who are all talking at the same time, that communication can get missed or misinterpreted. And I can recall, you know, there was a code, I guess about two years ago in the neurocritical care, and the anesthesiologist was having a difficult time with a patient with a difficult airway, and she could not get the patient intubated. And there was just chaos all in the room because we were all trying to do all these different things. And she stepped back and, you know, she was ventilating the patient with the bag valve and she just asked everybody in the room to take a deep breath, be quiet for a moment so that she could focus. And it was crazy. That next attempt went super smooth. She intubated the patient with no problem, but she communicated her needs to us in that moment. And then the rest of the code went great because of it. It was, it was so smooth, but we had to take a step back and 
and take a breath before we could move on. And, and that was that was huge for the outcome for the patient. For those listening who don't know what intubation is, like how challenging is that procedure? So it's not very challenging because an anesthesiologist, this is something they do multiple times a day, every day. Um, but it's to protect the airway and it's the tube that goes down into the, the windpipe or the breathing uh, pipe, as they call it. And anesthesiologists, you know, do this routinely. But in this case, the patient had a difficult airway. Um, we couldn't flex their neck because of a, a brain injury and a neck injury. And so she wasn't able to position the head so that she could visualize what she needed. Mm-hmm. And that just made it more complex. Yeah. OK, thank you for dissecting that for us. All of this kind of leads into my next question, which is, I know that clinicians and providers receive an ordinate amount of education and training on medicine, but how much of the training and education is devoted to the soft skills like mindset, relationships, emotional intelligence? (laughs) It's actually little to none. Um, There just isn't time because the nursing schools are educating to the content that's on those NCLEX exams. So what's on the exam to get the nurses to pass their boards. And the medical schools are the same. They're educating to what the providers need to know on the board exam. And these soft skills aren't on those exams. So in addition to that, science keeps expanding. And as we learn more and more about the functions of the body, how the body reacts to new medications or new equipment for procedures or innovative surgical techniques like robotics, we keep adding to the medical curriculum, to the nursing curriculum, to teach those skills. And nursing educators across the country are struggling with which content to include. And it's hard to narrow it down, but those, you know, soft skills just aren't added in because there isn't time. But there's so many initiatives to improve patient safety and improve patient outcomes, but there is a gap in addressing mindset and emotional intelligence. And Most nurses, by nature, kind of migrate toward their specialty that fits their mindset. And so there's a lot of opportunity for nurses to find a good fit for them. As I mentioned earlier, you presently serve as the coordinator for nursing clinical standards at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. This role assures that nursing policy and practice implement current evidence-based practice for all 3,800 nurses. My sense is that evidence-based practice means different things to different industries. How do you define evidence-based practice in critical care nursing? So everything that nurses do is actually backed by science and research. And the end result in mind is always our patient outcomes. We always want our outcomes to be positive. And I'll give you a good example. We talked about the the endotracheal tube, and that's the tube that we use to protect the patient's airway. And, you know, the doctors place those tubes, and then they walk away. They leave nursing to deal with the risks. And nursing has to deal with, in the intubation example, with the endotracheal tube, that risk would be ventilator-acquired pneumonia. So we put you on a ventilator. We help you breathe but that increases your risk for pneumonia. So we've done a lot of research and we know, you know, the mouth has a lot of bacteria. And so we research methods for, you know, how often do we suction the airway? What is the frequency of suctioning? What type of catheter might we use to suction the airway? You know, we look at details like how is the catheter 
packaged? You know, do we need to do it sterile? Can it be clean? Um, and then we monitor things like skin breakdown. You know, how is that airway taped to the patient's face? It has to be secure or it'll come out and we don't want it to come out because it's a traumatic procedure. But how often do we reposition the tube in the mouth? How often does that tape need to be changed? We want to avoid any kind of trauma from what we're doing. So we want to avoid things like sores in the mouth. So we research, you know, oral care. How, you know, how many times do we need to do mouth care every day? And from there, you know, nurses have developed different products. Um, so one of the products that we use at our institution that was created by a nursing team and, and a respiratory therapy team are the mouth care kits. And it includes, you know, the proper number of suction catheters based on what the evidence tells us is best, best practice. And these kits include, you know, the oral care solutions that we need, the moisturizers that we need because the mouth remains open all the time. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to, you know, prevent that ventilator-acquired pneumonia. And we're, we packaged, it was packaged in like a 24-hour kit. So nurses just have to grab one kit every day, and it's exactly what you need for 24 hours. Um, also things like there's other products that we've adopted one at our institution that we use are endotracheal tubes with what's called an inline suction catheter. So at the end of the tube, there's a balloon that we inflate to secure the airway to hold it in place. And the inline suction catheter, which was created by a nurse, by the way, mm -hmm. um, allows the suctions that rest on top of the balloon to be removed. Because what we found is as that balloon naturally loses air, just like a regular balloon loses air over time, you know, that the secretions that are sitting there, when we turn the patient, they slip down into the lungs. And because that bacteria has just sit there for a while, can create pneumonia. So that, um, you know, all of those steps have been studied by nurses and respiratory therapists and providers to determine how can we decrease that risk. Mm -hmm. And that's just one example of one type of tube. And there are always going to be, you know, new tubes that we're dealing with, new medical devices. But nurses are always going to try to find the best method to keep that patient safe. And we've been using endotracheal tubes since the 1800s, but the process continues to be studied and perfected. And I, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to be doing something different than we're doing right now on a tube that we already know a lot about. Mm. This is great insight, and I want to continue unpacking decision-making in your industry. I would assume that formal education in medicine largely endorses analytical decision-making models over intuition or gut instinct. Is that an accurate assumption? It's interesting because I think I can recall a number of times when my gut you know, told me that a patient wasn't responding well, but the numbers all looks good. You know, the, everything on the screen looks good. And, you know, the patient appeared to be stable. But I remember a patient in the neurocritical care that had an elevated intracranial pressure. So pressure in the brain from a bleed that they'd had in the brain, a vessel had ruptured and the patient's vital signs all were stable. Everything was within normal limits. My intracranial pressure at the time, you know, was meeting the parameters that they wanted but there was just something that wasn't right. A little slight change in her heart rate, um, change in, you know, motor response seemed a little bit sluggish and a slight increase in the blood pressure. And I was only scheduled to assess that patient's neurostatus hourly, but my gut kept telling me to go back and 
do it again and do it again. And about 15 minutes later, after another reassessment, um, I found that the patient's left pupil had been blown, which is dilated, meaning that there was brain herniation, which is essentially lethal. And instead of discovering that increased intracranial pressure an hour later, uh, we discovered it within minutes and called a neurocode. So the treatment was started almost immediately, but it just reinforced the fact that you have to trust your gut mm-hmm. and you have to make those decisions you know, based on what you know from your nursing knowledge. So how do doctors and nurses train to make the best decisions under pressure, recognizing that the brain doesn't necessarily navigate an analytical decision-making model, particularly under stress? I think this is an interesting question because it identifies a gap in our current training process because most training environments just don't feel like the true clinical environment. We have a really great simulation center and our simulation environment, you know, looks exactly like our operating room and it looks exactly like our patient room. And we have, you know, these $50,000 or $80,000 mannequins that we use. I honestly don't know how much they cost, but yeah, they're great Um, because you can program them to do different things. And, but you know, when you walk into that training scenario, you know why you're there. Um, but you just don't know, you know, what might roll through that emergency room door. And take, for example, I'll give you an example of the Ebola virus, right? So when it was first discovered in monkeys um, and it had migrated to the United States, you know, the CDC was searching for ways to treat the disease without infecting the staff, Mm -hmm. caring for the patient and contaminate others in the process. So in response to the Ebola scare, Uh, Our institution created a biocontainment unit in 2014, and every step of the process required training, um, from transporting the patient safely to the unit to, you know, how do we run lab specimens? So every step was scrutinized to identify where breaks in the process could cause contamination. And it's really cool because the staff on this unit is all on a volunteer basis. You know, we don't have patients with highly infectious diseases very often. Um, But that staff is all volunteer, and they train in donning and doffing that personal protective equipment Mm -hmm. because it is a really complicated process that we don't do every day. Um, But the resources on that biocontainment unit are amazing. Um, The doors are color-coded for entry so that you know at a quick glance what doors you can and can't go into. Um, The supply Pixis machine is specific for those infection control supplies that you might need. The flooring and the walls um, are self-sealed so that there's no ventilatory, you know, escape of the bacteria or virus or whatever it may be. Um, we put in polycom systems that allows the providers to communicate with the patients without being in the room. Um, the airflow is actually vented out to the roof, out up on the, I don't know, 10th or 11th floor of the hospital. And there's an actual lab within the unit so that we don't accidentally contaminate the other labs in the basement. And also um, that biocontainment unit contains a bioclave. So we can immediately decontaminate equipment that we've used and there's no other equipment that goes into it. So you don't have to worry about, oh, was this piece of equipment in the biocontainment unit? It's all, all that we need and all that we use are right in that unit. So when a national health crisis occurs, you know, you need to have a, a collaborative healthcare team who can respond immediately 
with technology that keeps providers safe. And the goal of this unit is actually, you know, a multidisciplinary perspective. We had, you know, the chaplain service involved and, you know, all these different, of course, the um, infection control staff involved, but everyone stepped up to fulfill the mission of the organization. And it was cool to see how many nurses actually volunteered, you know, to take care of these patients because it is really risky. So you've brought up several things, but what are some of the most significant challenges facing the nursing industry today? When I started in the nursing industry over 20 years ago, the nurse leaders were talking about nursing being viewed as a profession. Nursing wasn't actually considered a profession in nursing in 1998. You know, nursing was only added to the Gallup public opinion poll less than 20 years ago in December of 1999. But since then, nursing has been ranked the most trusted profession for the last 17 years, except in December of 2001 after 9-11, when firefighters were ranked number one. But currently, there are two challenging issues that concern me the most. I think number one, and this has been talked about for years, is the nursing shortage. Um, There are more opportunities for nurses to move away from the bedside. And I think gone are the days that a nurse stays on the same unit and works with patients for 30 years. I mean, that's, that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, you know, you can become a nurse practitioner. You can become a nurse anesthetist. Um, there's nursing informatics, nurse midwives. You know, there's nurses out there that are creating products like the endotracheal tube that we talked about or going into coaching, health coaching or life coaching. And, you know, it's pretty sad that the media and TV, you know, cast a negative image of what nurses actually do. I mean, we laugh sometimes at some of the get-ups that the TV shows kind of set up for nurses and patients. And, you know, I, I joke around, my my own family even doesn't really understand what I do or what nurses do. So it's hard to get people interested in becoming a nurse. Mm-hmm. Uh, nursing school enrollment is down, and the dropout rate is really high because it's hard. I mean, it, it's it's not an easy thing to learn because you have to learn every aspect of nursing. You need to learn OB and PEDS and, you know, psych and mental health. Even if you don't want to go into those roles, in nursing school, you have to know it all. Um, And so this leaves the current nursing staff in a constant state of being short-staffed because there's tons of opportunities for overtime. And that just unfortunately leads to nursing burnout. Mm -hmm. And the mental, emotional, and physical demands to do more with less are forcing the nurses, you know, to walk away from the bedside. Mm -hmm. But the second challenge facing the nursing industry, I think, is the increase in the violence against healthcare workers. But unfortunately, you know, the violence against healthcare workers is increasing all the way from the EMS responders going to the scene to the surgeons and the doctors, you know. The nurses are with the patients and families 24-7, and when a patient becomes unstable or the outcome isn't what they anticipated, you know, the family tends to lash out at nursing because we're the closest, you know, we're the closest to the bedside. And I've personally had um, a security escort during an ICU shift because of a violent family. You know, the security guard was to stay with me at all times, Um, but sometimes the expectations of bringing a family member to a world-renowned medical institution is that they expect us to fix everything. And oftentimes that's not a realistic expectation. But unfortunately, Baltimore 
is a very violent city, and the guns and the drugs are everywhere, um, including inside our hospital walls. Um, patients and families are bringing drugs into the hospital, and the outcome, you know, typically impacts the nursing staff because the nurses are finding it, and the nurses are having to deal with it and address it um, in real time. And I've, you know, actually experienced violence a few times myself. Um, once a punch to the face oh, no. by a 91-year-old. Um, but thankfully, there wasn't much power behind that little punch. Um, but unfortunately, there are other healthcare workers that are not as fortunate. Mm-hmm. Again, you're providing great insight today. So thank you for all of that. There is a growing movement in America which embraces universal health care due to the increasing costs associated with health services, health insurance, and pharmaceuticals. At present, the delivery of medicine in the U.S. remains largely a private model, and it's largely operated like a business. How do the business dynamics and demands impact the clinical performance of nurses? I think in recent years is the frequency of drug shortages. Um, There's constant updates from the pharmacy as they ration different drugs, and they're sending out alerts to recommend alternative medications. If we're short on a a critical pain medication, for example, like fentanyl or morphine, Mm -hmm. you know, they're recommending different alternatives. And these aren't the rare expensive drugs, but they're drugs like sodium bicarbonate or, you know, common cardiovascular medications like epinephrine. Um, But there are also medications like antimicrobials, uh, chemotherapies and different electrolytes. And it's interesting because the University of Utah, who does a lot of research on medication shortages, indicated that 51% of drug shortages are from unknown cause. And that, I just, I can't even wrap my brain around that science, but 30% of those shortages come from manufacturing. And one key example from recent times, um, when Hurricane Maria destroyed Puerto Rico in September of 2017, there was a sudden shortage of IV mini bags, which is the, the little bag that we use to mix medications in. Because Puerto Rico was the United States' only manufacturing plant of IV fluids. So the markup for those IV mini bags exceeded 500%. Mm. And it actually forced nursing to kind of change practice. We had to, you know, then put medications in syringes and figure out different ways and different methods. And we needed to order different supplies um, because of that. And the, the concentration of the drugs changed And nurses needed to stay up to date on, you know, safe infusion practices to avoid administering these medications too quickly. So to take it back to human performance, are there any human performance principles or practices in particular that you have adopted from Leadership Under Fire and are seeking to apply in your current role as clinical standards coordinator at Johns Hopkins? So I'm still learning a lot from Jason um, and the Leadership Under Fire team about the mental performance initiative with the FDNY. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about how healthcare could get the right stakeholders to the table with all the other competing initiatives and demanding regulatory requirements, because these stakeholders are key in understanding the factors behind mental performance at the bedside and how it could impact our patient outcomes. And one of the strategic priorities um, within the institution at Hopkins is to support the well-being of our people and our communities. And so Hopkins is creating a new team and assembling a new team to research and implement this initiative. 
Um, but adding techniques like the tactical breathing uh, that I learned about at the summit is something that it isn't even being discussed in healthcare. And it's critical, I think, to share what other industries are learning, um, and even from sports performance and sports science. And you know, but I think the FDNY is a good place to start in in you know look getting healthcare to look at that perspective a little differently. Yeah. And if anybody's listening to this right now, wondering who's Jason and what the mental performance initiative (laughs) is, you can go back to a previous episode. I think it's episode number five and listen to Jason Bresler, the founder of Leadership Under Fire, talk about that. What do you view as being the weakest link in human performance in your industry or an area that presents the greatest opportunity for improvement, perhaps? So I think... The greatest opportunity for improvement could be in resilience, which was actually the theme for the summit this year. So, you know, unlike military and law enforcement and and the fire service, you know, nurses don't sign up to sacrifice their lives. Um, But the intensity, the stress, the physical and mental expectations are, are killing nurses. And we need to create mental skills programs with a focus on the growth mindset. And I think there's been a lot of research on, you know, human performance and how it impacts patient outcome. But really the only thing that research has said is that nurses are overloaded cognitively, perceptually, um, and physically, but they haven't given us good concrete strategies to decrease the risk of burnout. You brought up that um, you attended the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Summit in Annapolis, Maryland earlier this year, and you actually served as a group facilitator for the two-day summit, and this year's theme was resilience. Which thought leader's perspective resonated with you as a critical care nurse the most and why? And right now, I think I want to add that your husband also works in a high-risk mm-hmm. industry, law enforcement. I think the summit was a great experience for me. It was definitely a fresh perspective. Um, and I wanted to thank the team for the opportunity to attend because I was kind of the only odd man out that wasn't in the fire service other than the speakers. My grandfather was a lieutenant in the Baltimore City Fire Department. But I think no matter what field you're in, you know, resilience is a common topic. But Dr. Preston Klein actually addressed this scenario during his presentation that provided a great context for me because it was a healthcare environment and a healthcare perspective. And he discussed mission critical communication. And in an it was in an operating room scenario. And not only was he hilarious and a engaging speaker, he expanded the conversation to include multiple industries. And I could see, you know, my husband's been in law enforcement for the last 24 years. I could see that same conversation fitting with his role, you know, and and the ability to communicate in critical situations in his line of work. And, you know, I just think in sports and in healthcare and in the fire science, you know, it's, it's the same no matter what you're applying it to. But I think I learned the most, you know, from him and and it was just great to to look at it from so many different angles and to think about, you know, just the, the word resilience from so many different perspectives. It was, it was a great opportunity. Yeah, just to dig a little bit deeper into resilience, is it your professional experience that people who are exposed to trauma are more likely to have a negative reaction to it? So I think everyone, you know, processes trauma differently. And it's really hard to jam everyone into the same box. 
you know, nurses need to know that those resources are available. And, you know, just like the fire department or law enforcement, it's still viewed as a weakness or a punishment to seek help. Um, and nurses, you know, they want to help others, but they often themselves, you know, don't ask for help. And it's really hard in healthcare because there's the HIPAA law mm -hmm. and patient privacy that we are restricted in what we can discuss. And, you know, I, I can clearly recall uh, a patient that I had who had an arterial rupture. And it just so happened I was standing right at the bedside. Um, the patient abruptly lost a significant volume of blood. Um, the patient had been admitted to the surgical ICU around noon. So the previous night shift didn't know the patient. And then when the patient ruptured in the late afternoon, you know, the code required uh, endotracheal intubation, a central venous access was placed. We started vasopressors to maintain the patient's cardiac output and to keep their blood pressure up. We did, you know, rapid infusion of multiple blood products. And once the patient was stable, we had to transport the patient to the procedural area, um, which is over about six city blocks away from where the ICU was at the time. And by the time I got back to the ICU, it was after 8 p.m. All the day shift staff was gone. The charge nurse was gone. You know, no one from the night shift even knew what had happened. And I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have anybody to, to debrief with because nobody had any idea that anything had happened. And, you know, it's like once you get in the car and all those emotions that you've been holding for so long, you know, come flooding out. But I never had the opportunity to debrief. You know, there was never any follow-up. There was never any method for me to discuss how I could have done better, how the team could have done better, you know, because... The very next shift was all, all new people, all different people. And, you know, nurses tend to beat themselves up over simple mistakes. And you hear stories about nurses and doctors committing suicide over medical mistakes. And, you know, I, I think I can vividly recall, you know, errors that I've made. Um, and it can haunt you if you don't deal with it, if you don't, you know, assess something early enough or find something soon enough. And for me, I feel like you need to surround yourself with those more senior staff, you know, more senior leaders and that you look up to that are amazing examples um, and just talk through the experiences and learn from it. What are some other stress management practices that you found work for you and others in your industry? During the summit, you know, our group that I was facilitating, we kept coming back to the kitchen table for the firefighters. And in the fire department, that's a sacred space for debriefing and conversations and establishing camaraderie, but nurses don't have the benefit of the kitchen table. And when a code or a high stress situation occurs and the nurses all run to that patient, you know, once the patient's stabilized, we all have to go back to immediately caring for the assignment that we had. And for the rest of our shift, we're behind and playing catch up. And, you know, you need to be proactive as a nurse or how you debrief on those things. You know, I just, just spoke about not having the ability to debrief, but if, if it's something that, that is so, you know, traumatic, you have to be able to speak up and say, you know, I need help. I need someone that I can talk to, to talk through this because, you know, I, I want to do better and we all want to get better. We all want to improve, you know, but, but we don't always take the time and we don't always have the kitchen table to sit down and, and talk through those things. 
So at the core of the Leadership Under Fire philosophy is the belief that moral fitness is paramount to optimal human performance. What are the sorts of moral dilemmas that critical care nurses navigate in a hospital setting? Well, one concerning factor is how nurses are dealing with issues. Um, You know, one of the things that really is concerning is the opioid epidemic Um, because it has changed healthcare, um, and nurses are dealing with patients who are drug seeking or who may be, you know, coming into the hospital for the wrong reasons. Um, We see overdoses in the hospitals are on the rise. Um, Unfortunately, families are bringing drugs into the hospitals for the patients. And, you know, we have patients who maybe they've gotten endocarditis, which is inflammation of a valve or a part of the heart from contaminated needles that they've used doing IV drugs. So we want to treat the patient. We want the patient to get better. And so we place an IV um, that we can use to administer IV antibiotics. Typically, we would discharge the patient with that IV and give them the resources so that they could do the antibiotics at home because the treatment is actually six weeks. Um, but unfortunately, some of these patients, you know, we can't discharge with that line in place um, because we fear what they would do with that line. So they're forced to stay in the hospital to complete that antibiotics. And, you know, it's really hard when you're dealing with a patient population that doesn't want to care for themselves and really doesn't, you know, like you having them, you know, in the room for six weeks. It's, it's a long time for the staff. It's a long time for the patient, you know, and the, the families get frustrated, um, you know, because it's just the same thing day in and day out. And it, you know, it's hard. It's difficult. So we have to care for those patients no matter what, Um, no matter what the scenario, no matter why they're there, you know, we have to care for them. And it's really hard. So then to wrap up, how can critical care nurses prepare to navigate moral dilemmas? I think having the conversation in a proactive manner is really critical because so many things in healthcare are reactive. You know, we react to a new virus or a new disease. Um, but we're not immune to the same poor coping mechanisms as healthcare providers. You know, nurses by nature have said we want to care for others, um, but we lose focus when caring for ourselves. But we need help with dealing with death and dying. You know, I think about the pediatric oncology nurses that we have, you know, that may have treated a child for two years um, or, you know, just the dying process in a sudden death. Say our emergency department has a patient come in and there's a a sudden death or dealing with violence in the workplace or even, you know, medical mistakes. But it's unfortunate that the conversation doesn't even exist to ask, you know, what would you do if this happened to you? I so appreciate the conversation that we just had today and you describing a high risk, high pressure, highly competitive industry. So thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Sure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. 
Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF. More at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit LeadershipUnderFire.com.